Welcome to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast with Sakar Kauli. During this program, you will hear guest experts sharing their experiences, best practices, and market insights. We discuss investing in multifamily apartment complexes and how a busy professional can passively invest hassle-free in various opportunities. Your host, Sakar Kauli, owns millions of dollars of assets and has done thousands of value-add projects over 20 years now. So listen in for insights. Here's your host, Sakar Kauli. Welcome to another edition of Premium Cashflow Podcast. Boy, it is a pleasure today to have uh, Dylan Borland with uh, Borland Capital Partners today. Uh, welcome to the show, uh, Dylan. Thank you for taking time today. Yeah, thank you. Don't don't speak of me too highly because I don't want to disappoint. Okay. <laughs> no, you you being humble, Dylan. So I appreciate your time. I appreciate uh, for, you being, yeah, having me on your show for sure. Absolutely. So uh, for our viewers and listeners, Dylan is with uh, uh, Borland Capital Partners. He's the chairman and CEO of the company. Uh, it is a private family office and a large uh, private real estate equity player uh, today. Uh, since 2006, Dylan has invested well over uh, into 2,700 uh, units and placed well over uh, $180 million. Uh, he has a large background uh, into doing real estate single family homes, which he exited and has come in a big way. And he's a very good mindset guy, understanding what it takes the mind shift to kind of come into multifamily and the uh, sort of the mindset someone has to adopt to yeah. go bigger, better. So thank you, Dylan. I appreciate your time. Uh, kindly yeah. share with the listeners and uh, help us get started about your background and kind of what, what things are happening at your company today. How, how far back do you want to go? <laughs> <laughs> Let's start with the real estate career. How's that? <laughs> Well, I, you know, I got into real estate, you know, most people that know me know this. I got into real estate at a really young age. I was 17, actually. Mm -hmm. um, and I had to have my girlfriend at the time buy my first property because she was of legal age. Sure. <laughs> um, and I started there because I was fixing flipping cars and I wanted to figure out, you know, how could I, what could I fix and flip? And naturally I gravitated towards real estate. Sure. Um, so like you had mentioned earlier, I started in started that in 2006 was really kind of when I officially launched my my business, mm -hmm. um, and that was what gosh two years out of high school oh my goodness I just mm -hmm. now realize that. <laughs> so you know I started with fix and flipping, um, which is something I was very very passionate about the single family space. I did that up until about 2014, mm -hmm. um, as you and I had talked ahead of the show. Sure. Um, you know my specialty really was foreclosures. Mm -hmm. flipping properties. We did about 100, 120 properties a year here in Metro mm -hmm. Detroit, uh, like clockwork. You know, I'm a very sure. systematic person. We use systems and processes to, to do everything. So, mm -hmm. and then I, you know, developed during that time a, a single family portfolio of 108 single family properties as well. Sure. And then mm -hmm. I got very, very complacent in my life. You know, mm -hmm. I, I through real estate, one of the, my original reasons in real estate was to hit a very specific cash flow. I just thought, gosh, if I could do a hundred thousand a year, that would be great. And then sure. very mm. quickly you get there. Right. And sure. then I say, gosh, mm. if I could do a million dollars a year, which is something I never thought I would do in my life, mm -hmm. um, then, you know, I didn't think that would be possible. And then I sure. got there sure. and then I was lost for a while and I just got very, very complacent. Um, and it wasn't until I had a, a partner 
this is like 2013-ish, who mm -hmm. was diving into multifamily. Well, he's a friend. He was part of the same coaching program I was in. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, and he started doing um, multifamilies, and he had a property in Minnesota. He had a property mm -hmm. down in Florida and Ocala. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, why don't you just come in, dive your feet. I need a partner. We go 50-50, dive your feet on these properties. And I said, all right, sure, I'll, I'll dive in. And the properties did very, very well. I had very limited participation in them. We sold mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. uh, made a lot of money and I never thought of it again. I, like I said, I was very complacent in single family. I was comfortable. Sure. I could do it in my sleep. And, mm -hmm. um, and then just something happened where I just got like super burnt out from just, you know, like I didn't have, I went through a, a, a divorce early on and I had actually, and we, we didn't talk about this. Why did I sell my single family other than yeah. it caused the most stress in my life? Mm -hmm. I went through a divorce. I had to sell that entire portfolio. So I, I lost all that cash flow. Mm -hmm. So then every day I had to wake up and figure out, you know, to keep this machine going, what, what was sure. a house I was going to fix and flip every single day. I just got sure. really, really burnt out. So make a long story short, you know, I said, wow, well, let me go back to, you know, multifamily. And if I'm going to rebuild my cash flow portfolio, I don't want this for me. It was, it was actually very stressful. Um, sure. And not everybody has that same opinion. Some people really like yourself. You really like single family portfolios. I didn't like it. <laughs> sure, sure. No, and, and I think there's something to be said, uh, Dylan, as well, right? You know, things done right, right? Yeah. And uh, and obviously I'm at a yeah. phase where basically all the acquisitions are done and it's kind of a moving uh, pretty much a clockwork machine at this point. Yeah. But to your point, right? obviously single family business as you're growing it's a ton of work like yeah. you're acquiring every yeah. single house one step at a time you're fixing yep. it up leasing it and things like that right and i did that right yeah. so now i'm at a point where it is absolutely stable we are just pretty much holding on and maintaining it so i can see the benefits but i can completely yeah. you know sort of relay your sentiment there that Yes, I mean, it is a lot of work, onesies, yeah. twosies that you're doing, so many roofs, so much of maintenance and things like that, so many yeah. leasing tenants. And as as the game says, right, that multifamily, you come to a benefit of scales and things like that, right? Yeah. So, so there's, there's, there's definitely, so turning back to your story then, Dylan, here, uh, how, how, what, what was that shift? Like, why would you, why you wanted, yes, multifamily is a great way that, I want to scale there and it makes sense to go there. Yeah. I mean, that's a good question, right? So we all know, I think long-term wealth in this business is generated in my opinion through, through cash flow. Sure. Um, I didn't want to wake up every morning and fix and flip another house. And I certainly didn't want to go back to single building another single family portfolio. Sure. So I think the natural gravitation for me was, um, you know, going into multifamily and like many people, I kind of started with my own capital. Mm -hmm. And that only got me so far. And then I discovered, you know, syndicating real estate, right? Sure. Um, but I thought to myself, like you and I had just talked about, well, if I could get a hundred properties, you know, under one geographic location, under one roof per se, versus sure. spread out throughout an entire state, you know, mine, sure. mine weren't throughout the whole state, but a metropolitan area. Sure. Um, that was very appealing to me. So that was my first goal. I bought, you know, two 12 unit properties. Um, and then a 96 unit property and, 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 uh, everything was great. Right. So awesome. mm -hmm. my, my goal and my motivation there was I want to get back to cash flow. I want to have a million dollars a year in cash flow. That was always my goal. Right. Sure. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I wanted to do that 
and I'm always thinking about how can I simplify things? How can I simplify the process? How can I gravitate to the, the path of least resistance? Sure. And so mm-hmm. for me, you know, multifamily was just an, it was a no brainer in that capacity. Um, and then I started to fall in love with it. And I said, all right, well, I only have so much cash and so much resources of my own. And then I stumbled across syndication and just exploded from there. You know, awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Now- the cash flow was the main reason, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to get back to that cash flow. And I didn't want to do it with a hundred properties spread across, you know, a state or multiple states. Sure, sure, sure. And, and and you're absolutely right, Dylan. That there are just so many inefficiencies when it comes to multi. I mean, when it comes to single family, I should uh, say that it's just not scalable, you know, and, sure. and some people don't have the luxury of, let's say if someone uh, is sitting in their car in, uh, let's say, uh, some of the, uh, you know, like banner markets of, let's say the Charlotte's or the Virginia or New York yeah. or Boston and things like that. They cannot say that, hey, I'm going to buy, uh, you know, let's say 10 single family houses in their, uh, in their, uh, you know, close to their uh, neighborhood. It That sort of price to income uh, ratio or price right. to rent ratio, as we say, it just doesn't work, you know, right. and you have to be in those right pockets to kind of get that proper cash flow and make yeah. it sort of a sustainable machine of sorts. And, and that's why I think we say that, yes, multifamily gives you that sort of scale, scalability, efficiency, and of, sure. of course, the cash flow and things like that, right? Yeah, so now yeah. today, Dylan, uh, kindly share with us that where exactly, what states are your properties and, you know, sort of uh, are these B class, C class or B plus properties? Yeah, yeah. Good question. So early on, my focus was very much value add investor, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and mostly for that cash flow, right? To build the sure. cash flow. Um, and my original objective, I'll kind of tell you how it progressed. My original objective was to get into class C properties and kind of class B areas, right? Sure. Um, mm-hmm. Reposition those assets. And then, you know, they were so distressed that we would, um, you know, we're buying assets 1970s, 1980s. They're at mm-hmm. the tail end. They need the renovations. They need everything. Sure. Reposition those. And then they were so distressed. We can improve value so much that we were able to refinance investors out in 12 to 24 months. And then my strategy there was then we kept the properties in perpetuity in our portfolio. Right. Sure. Sure. So we could refi for people who are listening may not know we could refi return all the equity back plus a profit, which was tax free for the investors, which was great. Sure. Um, Mm -hmm. And then we kept it. And so that strategy worked really well. And then I didn't want I kind of progressed from there and I said, all right, well, my, my, my strategy shifted more towards wealth preservation at that point, which is kind mm-hmm. of a whole nother strategy. Whereas before I was really much looking towards that, that cash on cash, 10, 12, 13, 14, 15% a year, you know, was most important to me. I didn't really care about the value of the property at exit if it appreciated too much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but then what I found is like, it's like old, owning an old boat. And so sometimes we get into these assets in their 1970s and 1980s and maybe their 1950s or 1930s and they got mm. 100 year foundations and you name and they just you need the operating expenses were running higher on these types of properties and so as i started to progress again in my business i said well look i want to shift towards kind of buying assets which are class b class a type of stuff that you know is newer we can hold maybe multi-generational wealth you know um uh where it wasn't so much cash flow, right? Sure, we were sure. focused on. It was more like, how can we take money and how can we preserve that in these newer types of buildings? And so I kind of did that for about two years mm-hmm. um, and built a small portfolio there, placed a lot of equity there as well. Sure. 
-hmm. for those who are listening, they, they might not know, um, my specialty is really raising capital through funds. So we have a lot sure. of funds that are raised and I deploy capital. Mm -hmm. We manage those funds um, as well. And then we obviously get a percentage of the equity of all that. Sure, sure. Um, so that, that was great. And then I said to myself, well, I'm still working too hard. You know, I still don't like the process of finding, you know, these buildings. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't like the process of managing these buildings and in, in the whole charade. And so sure. the last two years, like you and I had discussed, my focus really then gravitated even further to, all right, well, if we look at the capital stack of the equation and who's actually doing all the work, it's the syndicators. The syndicators sure. are running around finding the deals and processing the deal and executing the value add strategy. Um, and, and for me, it was very appealing to say, well, wait a minute, I have a lot of capital relationships, right? We've got capital ourselves that we're trying to preserve. I sure. can earn similar returns and not have to do all the work if I just participate in the equity side of the structure. Sure. Mm -hmm. And so we've really shifted our business and our office towards really focusing now. Uh, we still syndicate, mm -hmm. but it's, it's, it's stuff in, like you and I had talked about, it's markets where I like to be because I want to have an asset that I can pop in and stay at in Sedona. That's great. Or Naples, sure. Florida, which I really enjoy, for example, is great. Right. But now we've really taken ourselves and, and we're looking to align ourselves with good owner operators, good syndicators with proven track record that need that equity. Sure. Um, and then look, my work goes down even more. You know, I check awesome. in, make yep. sure the plan's on track. I'm getting the returns that we're supposed to get. And I think a lot of people don't actually realize, and, and maybe you got an opinion on this yourself, but I can earn just as much in an LP position as if I were in the opposite position as, as the owner of the syndicate. I mean, it's just a matter of a few points. It, sure. it's, it's like nothing and I don't have to do the work. Sure, sure. And so sure. that's really kind of where I've gravitated to now in a very short time, in a matter of like five or six years. So. Sure, sure. And yeah. I, I echo that sentiment, uh, Dylan, there as well yeah. is that, and especially the market, the timing has to play, uh, kind of goes hand in hand with that is that, yeah. I mean, we, uh, you and I both know that there are several markets where passive investors are making a ton of money that can, they can sure. never complain about. <laughs> and on the same, on the same token, you have sponsors who are also making equally good amount of money yeah. and obviously rising tide lifts all boats, as we say, which is great. I mean, you would never complain that, Hey, everybody exited. Everybody's happy. You'd never have an issue, right? Yeah. I mean, sure enough, you know, if sponsor makes a little bit more money, I mean, that's what they work for and yeah. that's the whole goal, right? So, and I totally echo your sentiment there is that, yes, I mean, given the risk reward or the work that's involved, perhaps yeah. the passive investors are making, uh, you know, for a risk adjusted, you know, they are making equally good money for sure, you know. Yeah. So yeah. now turning subjects a little bit now, uh, Dylan, like obviously we are going through the pandemic and yeah. we know that so many jobs are affected. I mean, you have tenants who have sort of lost their jobs or reduced hours and things like that. Sure. So sort of that C-class um, uh, is, is really kind of affected, right? So yeah. could you maybe share a sort of as we move through uh, this COVID crisis, right? What, what sort of, um, you know, adjustments you are doing, whether it is uh, looking at different class of deals or perhaps, you know, kind of maybe making some adjustments in your uh, underwriting and things like that. How, how do you sort of piecemeal through all of this? You know, that, that's, um, I'm actually, I, I was just reminded as you brought that up, um, you know, I saw the writings on the wall. I'm a very analytical person. 
And if you're data driven, you can look at the markets and you can see how things shift. And on average, you know, there's there's a, a peak and a and a low every 10 to 12 years, typically. Sure. Right. Sure. You can, there's indicators in the market which you look for that there's possibly going to be a market correction. And so I saw the writings on the wall and I knew sometime probably 2019, 2020, I didn't predict, you know, the pandemic that we're in, but I knew something would happen. Sure. You know, um, as, you know, uh, real estate would shift. And so we liquidated out of all of our Class C assets um, in 2018. We sold all of our positions and or all of the properties. Incredible. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and for that reason, in anticipation, it was going to shift. And so I filled my portfolio back up with Class A, Class B types of assets um, uh, ahead of that. Sure. And uh, it's worked out very, very well. And that's why, I, I, you know, you've probably had many conversations with people in this. And I think every marketplace is different, by the way, how, how sure. different classes have been affected. Sure. But, you know, like in our marketplace, the people that are getting hit the hardest right now. Now, I, I, now let me say this. Residential real estate, multifamily, single family is still like very low, in my opinion, in terms of an asset class real estate that's been affected by COVID. Right. Sure. Like, sure. Very, sure. Very safe. I haven't seen much of a ripple there at all. Absolutely. We, we, do, we don't want to compare notes with, let's say, the retail or the yeah. uh, you know, transportation <laughs> or hotel industry for that matter. But, right. but go ahead with your thoughts. Then you break it down. So let's look at multifamily. Say, okay, so what asset classes in multifamily have been affected? Well, I've seen people like in the Detroit marketplace, class C, even class D type of property is, is really being hit hard, to be honest. Sure. Mm -hmm. And sure. that's not the same for every marketplace. Sure. So, mm -hmm. you know, to answer your question, we have had, just like you had mentioned ahead of this call, zero. Um, knock on wood, zero effect. Sure. Nothing has, I mean, there hasn't even been a blip on the radar in terms of our, our tenants. But I think a lot of that is because of the asset class that we're invested in, the class A, the class B, sure. the people that have the ability to work more remotely. When this thing first hit, a lot sure. of people were getting affected in the class C stuff because generally speaking, there were restaurant workers and you know, kind of, you know, this type of field that they had to be there or they really got impacted by this Re sure, retail sure. workers, that type of stuff. Tenants. Absolutely. Not hmm? All, but just making a generalization here. A typical blue collar worker, you would say. Right. Basically. Yep. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we were fortunate and, and I, and, and one of the reasons why I did so well in my single family portfolios, I really focused on like you buying in good neighborhoods, higher end areas. Sure. And I would have really good tenants and I would never get a phone call right? Because I would focus sure. on people that would stay two, three, four, five years, had good jobs. And so very similar to our, our multifamily portfolio is I want to be, you know, I want to have a tenant base that is filled with, you know, hot, middle range to higher end type of, of tenants. Does that make sure. sense? Uh, it, it does. It does. Absolutely. I mean, the portfolio performance is so much closely yeah. dictated to, you know, sort of the class of your tenant, where they are working, what sort of yep. their working attitude is and how stable they are and things yep. like that. The lesser drama or the lesser volatility you can have. I mean, yeah. that's, that's, that's absolutely the key. Now, Dylan, you, you mentioned that uh, your company has several funds and you're raising all sorts of capital, right? Yeah. Uh, why are you kind of, uh, you know, sort of fund specific? Why not maybe perhaps do a uh, asset specific, uh, uh, you know, sort of syndications and things like that? Well, you know, that's a good question. And you had said this earlier. I do think that the um, love for funds or the trend of, you know, things move in trends. There's a time, if you look at real estate cycles, it's there's so many trends in like a 10 year period. And I sure, think sure. that there's times in which, 
syndication works better than funds. Mm-hmm. There was a time in like the mid to 2014, 2015, where people were like, no, if you have a, if you have an asset, I'll invest in that. But funds were not, at least my experience, funds were not very favorable during that time. Sure. Mm-hmm. And then when the market starts to crash and people realize, well, we want to have a little bit more cash. We want to be a little bit more liquid. Well, the fund model starts to get more favored again. Sure. And so, you know, early on in my career, I ran, actually, I ran a very small venture capital company uh, mm-hmm. for nine years in addition to real estate. Mm-hmm. And so the fund model was very natural to me in 2008, 2009, coincidentally enough, when the market crashed, I launched mm-hmm. my first fund and it did very well because there was a need to be cash heavy. There was a need to be very liquid. Sure. And then that kind of phased out and was harder to raise funds. And then, so I said, well, what do I do? And then I started going into syndications for a period of years, right? Sure. And that, mm-hmm. that model worked very, very well. And now I just anticipated again Well, when the market crashes, when the market corrects, the lending starts to restrict, banks start to, those with cash are keen. And so um, I gravitated, I took 2019 off and then I said, going into 2020, I'm going to go out of the gate hard and raise another fund. And usually Mm -hmm. they're like 30 to $50 million funds. Sure. I said, let's double down and do a $200 million fund because I know the market's going to correct. Sure. And this Mm -hmm. was like early, like December, just before the first of the year, Mm -hmm. right? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and so we made a commitment to raise our, our, God, I think it's our fourth fund now, 200, $200 million fund instead of our normal 30 to 50 million. Wow. Um, mm-hmm. and for that reason. And then now look at things have happened. And I really think those who are sitting cash heavy, those who are very, very liquid are going to be in the positions of power, even over the banks, mm-hmm. right? When, mm-hmm. when the market shifts. Now I do think these things happen personally in 12 to 24 month cycles. If you, if you follow it, Sure. I think a lot of people are still kind of confused because there hasn't been a shift in real estate per se. Things mm-hmm. are still really nice, mm-hmm. but I think it's also, there's been a time in history where we've never seen the government. We've never seen businesses get involved to try to prop things up and prevent a crash like they have today. Sure. Per- sure. Postponing foreclosures, postponing evictions, pumping a ton of money into the economy and that type of stuff. So I think it's kind of a false sense of security. Sure. It's inevitable at some point it's going to correct. Sure. But that correction is delayed. We don't know how it's going to play out. Absolutely. To your question, um, I think right now we're in a time where um, funds make a lot of sense. Syndications still make a lot of sense, but I want to mm-hmm. be ahead of the curve. Mm-hmm. And I want to be sitting very, very cash heavy. Um, and there's already a lot of syndicators, a lot of real estate owners that are in trouble. A lot of commercial real estate. I think the first time residential real estate got hit hard in 08, 09, this sure. time around, commercial real estate is being annihilated. It's going to get hit hard, and it already is getting hit hard. Absolutely, I think that that tsunami <laughs> for sure is coming. I mean, we, we can we can already tell. I mean, the restaurants, yeah. the sh- the sh- the strip shopping centers, and whatnot. I mean, that's the cascading effect that you, that perhaps uh, uh, you know uh, is is definitely on the cards. And as as you alluded to, I think with the stimulus and all the stuff that's going around right now, we are kind yeah. of in that false sense of security or, hey, yeah. everything is good type of, uh, you know, it's, 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 as we say, like it's the calm before the storm yeah. of sorts. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, Dylan, uh, kind of moving on in your fund model, you know, obviously you are speaking to a lot, many passive investors and a lot of other uh, folks as well. Uh, can you maybe describe, uh, like, let's say if you're talking to your potential, uh, uh, you know, uh, passive investor, for example, uh, how how's that conversation goes? Like what benefits you tell them and how do you kind of, um, you know, sort of sell your product and convince sure. them to invest? 
Well, you know, I mean, I've been doing it for a little while now. So, I mean, naturally you have existing relationships and you, you don't, I, I hate to say it, but it's, it's always kind of this problem when you first start, it's sure. like, it's so hard to get capital. And then at some point you have so much capital, you know what to do with. And I'm not saying sure. that from an egotistical standpoint, it's just, sure. it's a it fact. Takes, these relationships take time. And so your job gets a lot easier. Sure, over sure, time, sure, right? sure, sure, sure. So very early on, we were very aggressive in how we structured our funds. Whereas now it's, you know, we, we make very minimal effort, to mm -hmm. be honest with you, in raising capital. And, and it depends on how much you're trying to raise. Sure. Because if you're trying to raise $200 million, like we suspect, you know, we're going to have four institutional investors, probably at $50 million each. Mm -hmm. And when you're working with institutions, they have a lot more requirements. They want to see a lot different structures. They take a lot bigger piece of the pie. The reason why we've always done smaller funds in the past, the 20 to $30 million fund, because we could target high net worth individuals, family offices in mm -hmm. which we could maintain more control of the structure. Sure. We could charge like some of our first funds. We offered an eight, I'll kind of tell you the progression. Some mm -hmm. of the first few funds were your high net worth person, your family offices, the high net mm -hmm. worth guy would usually put in 50, a hundred, 250,000. Your family offices would usually put in somewhere around three, four, five million. Mm -hmm. We'd have an 8% preferred return or a benchmark that got, had to get hit a 2% mm -hmm. management fee and capital deployed. Sure. Right. So not mm -hmm. just, you know, once we deploy it, we that's when the it. clock starts. Right. Sure. We've, we've experimented with the opposite where, mm -hmm. okay, then it's just 2% on all capital raised so mm -hmm. that we're not in a rush to deploy it. Cause that happens sometimes. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. um, and then it would be an 80, 20 split over that benchmark. Um, sure. And that was, that's most of our funds. Our fund today, there's no preferred return. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just an 80, 20 split on all income that comes in. Sure. Um, and the minimum investment for, we have so many spaces for kind of your high net worth guy mm -hmm. and the minimum investment, there's a hundred grand. Sure. Most of the funds made up of family offices when which the minimum investment is 3 million. Mm -hmm. And then our minimum institutional investment investment is 50 million. Um, I see. 2% fee on capital managed. So not capital deployed. Mm -hmm. And again, it's just an 80, 20 split on all income, no crap. So we've kind of gravitated, whereas before the pref really, really mattered to people, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and, and as we were building our reputation and our background and performance, mm -hmm. um, people felt a lot more comfortable with that. Okay, no matter what happens, these guys screwed up, you know, there's at least this kind of benchmark, right? We're mm -hmm. going to get paid the 8% first, you know, sure. assuming everything goes well, right? Mm -hmm. which, which they did, thank God. Um, but as we gravitated now and we have existing relationships and people trust us, we've actually been able to eliminate that press. I see. Uh, and we just mm -hmm. go to a straight split. And we even do that on our syndications now. A lot of syndicators offer a preferred return. On our sure. syndications now, um, it's just an 80-20 split on most of our deals. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. if you really do the math and you model it out on a performa, sure. this, is, this is actually very interesting. We find that just a straight split in 80-20 or 70-30 or whatever, it's actually better return-wise for investors than offering a preferred return. If you actually do the math and model it out on most deals. Sure, I don't sure. Think people, I don't think a lot of people think about that. Sure, sure. And, and there's something to be said about investor psychology there as well, that yeah. some people yeah. feel that there's safety and comfort in having yeah. a preferred return. Yep. And as you and I both know that both models are viable and many, yeah. many large syndicators uh, and you know, large offices just do a straight, straight split. So yeah. there's, there's definitely sort of a place for both of them. And I mean, uh, there's no yeah. right or wrong. It's just that what suits the 
peace of mind for an investor, exactly. whether it's the pref return and that's what they gravitate towards. Yeah. So all, all things are good. Now, so I appreciate the all the detail there, Dylan. Thank you for that. And, and if speaking of your progression from, let's say, a smaller fund to a 30 million to now, let's say, the $200 million fund, yeah. Dylan, you went through a gamut of, you know, talking to you know, like friends and family, then perhaps your higher yep. typical high net worth accredited investors, then you mentioned family offices, institutional money and things like that. Yeah. Kind of walk us through that progression, if you can, please, for our listeners. That would be an interesting conversation for folks to listen to that, you know, how much time it took or perhaps what goes behind the scenes about, you know, let's say whether it's marketing or, you know, kind of reaching out or, yeah, yeah. and kind of, um, you know, sort of one step at a time what, what it took i mean because i think to me i think you're going to family offices and institutional money i mean you are kind of pretty much in the big leagues of uh, you know all the private equity that's perhaps out there and i think and and, le- and let's lay it down that a 200 million dollar fund creation and as as young as you are and you are at that stage is a phenomenal achievement i want to definitely congratulate yeah. uh, you for that as well so walk us through that progression if you can please congratulate me when we're done we're only about a third of the way through so sure sure but you are we are way there i mean absolutely i mean you, you are way there for we got, sure. we've got 12 months so sure um but thank you so you know it really depends on your strategy and this is you know i actually have a really good video i shot on hot on this on my YouTube channel. Okay. Um, hmm. It talks about raising private equity and then you kind of look at it as this toolbox and like what toolbox do you tip, tip in for what? <laughs> so for example, when we're syndicating real estate and we're trying to raise, you know, $3 million, you know, and a syndicate, well, a lot of that is going to be your institution or your high net worth guy. Maybe your guy with your 401k or IRA is going to put in 25, 50, hundred thousand. But then you kind of reach this peak where you wouldn't raise a bunch of private individuals like you wouldn't raise 5 million because you could have a hundred people in that syndication deal. Right. So you kind of reach this. I've noticed kind of these peaks when it comes to capital raising Mm -hmm. and 3 million, if you have conversations with family offices is too small. Most family offices say, Hey, don't call me unless it's, you know, 3 million or above in in equity. Sure. And so I've kind of, you know, figured that out over the time and it said, all right. So then I look at my deal and I let the deal dictate kind of which box I tap into. Right. Sure. Mm-hmm. The same conversation goes with institutional investors. I have one institutional investor out of 1100 contacts that says I'll go as low as 25 million. Most, wow. tell, me, <laughs> most tell me don't call me unless you need a check for a hundred million or above. Now that Incredible. seems like a great problem to have, but there's not a lot of deals out there that require a hundred million in equity. Sure, sure. You need a large portfolio to acquire. Right. That's I mean, that's probably right. a large a class A portfolio. I and there's say. a handful <laughs> that say kind of their baseline is fifty million, right? And so mm-hmm. you got to let your and, and by the way, it's like you just have to let the deal dictate which box do you go into, which box do you tap into, sure, right? Sure. And sure. so I look at that as I'm doing deals or I'm, or I'm raising funds. And I say, you know, very rarely do we get in a position where we have to raise institutional capital because we don't have deals that require 50 million, 100 million in equity, right? Sure, sure, sure. So um, I don't know if that answered your question or not, but... Uh, well, I mean, uh, uh, partly, I mean, I def- definitely yeah. appreciate it. But in terms of, you know, like, let's say the marketing or behind the scene mechanics of, Got like, it. you know, whether 
you're sending out mailers or you know attending yeah. conferences and things if you can kind of give us that progression i'd appreciate it yeah yeah well there's different strategies for different categories right sure. so as with with i'm trying to raise from your high net worth guy your guy who's going to put in some money from a 401k or ira what i found very well is what we call you know magnetic capital and i didn't coin sure. that term somebody else came up with that i just have adopted it magnetic capital we're attracting it to us right sure sure and that strategy is very much um, educating the consumer. So I put out a lot of educational content. We have over mm -hmm. 150 videos on our YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. I set up a landing page and I drive Facebook traffic to it and Google traffic to it. And I get a lot of people who come to me and they say, okay, Dylan, you're an expert, you're authority in this space. I've got 50 grand or I got hundred grand. And they actually fill out a lead form that says, I want to invest. And you can see this. If you go to borlingcapital.com, um, you can see an example of this. Um, and so, so if I'm trying to attract that type of equity, which is most people, right? Sure. Mm -hmm. um, that strategy works very well where I'm driving people to a landing page. They tell me exactly what their asset classes they're interested in, exactly how much they want to invest, exactly how soon they want to invest mm -hmm. and what types of returns they like to see. And it, they mm -hmm. fill out this form, comes to me an email and I follow up. Now that relationship has changed. Instead of me prospecting and calling them, which by the way, doesn't work well in raising capital. Sure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm responding to them and saying, hey, tell me more about this. And if I have a deal that fits within these parameters, how soon are you looking to invest? Well, I already know immediately. Sure. It just is a much better conversation. So that's kind of the strategy in that capacity. With the family offices, um, one of the things that has served me very well is I actually opened my own family office. I think it was 2017. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, technically they say most family offices start at like a $20 million net worth or above. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I joined the network. I joined, I opened my own family office. We manage all of our stuff here internally as well. You know, I mean, you know how family offices sure, work, sure. but that has opened up. It's kind of like a, a, a brother's club of other family offices. And by having my own family offices, I'm immediately welcome as, as a family office kind of in that circle and I'm in I'm that network instantly, sure. instantly right. okay, we want to do deals together. Sure. Instant um, credibility. Of, yep. Yeah. Ahead of actually having my own family office though, if I'm trying to raise capital with family offices, um, attending the conferences, you know, Richard Wilson runs, in my opinion, the best family office conferences. He has like 30 events um, annually and now mm -hmm. they're doing virtual events, I think. Sure. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, and attending those and shaking hands and networking, and you can actually join their database and get list mm -hmm. of all of these family offices, what they're allocating capital to. And then in that capacity, we'll mail to them and we'll physically call them. And sure. it's not, hey, do you want to make an investment? I have a deal, which most people do. They just shove a deal down their throat and they blast that, that, that list and they kill the list. It's, hey, my name's Dylan, you know, I'm, I'm doing whatever. And I want to see how can I serve you? What types sure. of deals are you looking for? You know, uh, what types of opportunities and returns? And if there's something that I have that makes sense, would you mind if I reach out to you? I want to serve you. I'm at service to you, right? Sure, sure, sure. And so reaching out well ahead of the ask, you know, in this space, especially with family offices, they say it's two years it takes to build that level of trust and that relationships. And I agree with that, sure. right? Mm -hmm. And so you've got to start doing that work now. So now it's not so much about educating and attracting them to us. It's outreach. How can I be a service to you? How sure. can I provide value to you? Let's build and maintain that relationship. Mm -hmm. Every time I'm in, like, I've got 
of friends in California, every time in California, I'm stopping at one of, and, and having lunch or having a glass of wine or something. I don't drink wine, but sure. you know, they're having a glass of wine. I'm having water. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and maintaining those relationships over the course of one to two years, joining things like country clubs and um, private clubs. Like you see my shirt on now, I'm part of the athletic club, Detroit athletic club. I have sure. a network of other private, you know, Emerald level clubs across the world that I can go to and network mm -hmm. with high net individuals and other family offices and go play polo or something. Right. Sure. 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 And so those strategies work very well. And then from an institutional standpoint, um, you know, I subscribe to a service called PNS PSI online.com. Mm -hmm. And it's a database of institutional investors, mostly pension funds and funds of funds and endowments and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and they give you, right there in that database, um, all, all the fund managers, all the pension funds, who to contact, are they allocating towards alternative investments and how much of that is real estate? Mm -hmm. And then it's just reaching out to them. And there it's not a relationship thing, right? There it's, uh, what is your experience? What is your track record? And mm -hmm. are you institutional worthy? Meaning, are you set up, you know, do you have a solid track record? Ha show me that you've managed $20 million in real estate. Mm -hmm. so show me that your institutional quality that you're, you know, you're audited every year by a third party. Mm -hmm. You know, they want to see that you're institutional worthy and that you have a really solid track record in management sure. and owning and managing this type of capital. Um, and that, you know, and I don't know how you accelerate that. You know, for me, I wasn't able to tap into um, institutional capital until recently. Mm -hmm. And then, and then the other way that you can do it, because now we have deployed 180 million in capital. Now I have three funds. I can say here's the track record. Sure. But, but but that took me raising capital first from private individuals and family offices. It was a progression. Sure. 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 I think the way that you jump that hierarchy is like on our team now we're raising 200 million. It's the same. It's the same feedback. Well, show me you've managed 200 million. So mm -hmm. I've brought people on my team from Wall Street. I bought people on my team mm -hmm. in the private equity space that have raised a hundred million dollars and have that track record. So just sure. like you would bring on a sponsor, I bought people on my team. Like I have another family office. They're a billion dollar family office. Well, he's on my equity team for this fund. And we can say, here's my experience. And oh, by the way, they have a billion dollar private portfolio and they're on our team as well too. Awesome. So that's how mm -hmm. we've been able to jump kind of that, that hierarchy and transition to the $200 million space. Sure, sure, absolutely. It's, it's just like, you know, how people build their credibility by having a lot many mentors and things like that. Right. So you partnered with the right set of folks who are higher and much above you and yeah. to kind of help you propel to your yep. uh, sort of achievement. Incredible yep. story and incredible <laughs> details there. I, I appreciate the detail there, uh, Dylan. Thank you. Uh, now, speaking of family offices, you said, Dylan, that you established your own family office that yeah. sort of, got you in that sort of brotherhood network of other family offices as well. Can you maybe perhaps share um, how can someone get started with opening a family office as well? Because I think that your, your sort of your bellwether figure, you said 20 million uh, yeah. does ring a bell to, I mean, someone like me, for example, uh, in all honesty is, I mean, I'm far beyond that. And I'd, uh, I mean, I would be perhaps certainly be interested into exploring that as well. Yeah. So, I mean, the family office, you know, kind of environment is, is quite frankly, I think relatively new, you know, there's not a lot of official framework around it. It's a space mm -hmm. that's expanding and growing family offices for a long time. People with, you know, maybe you sold a company and made $200 million. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and they've, they've, 
for many years, we've seen the trend of them not trusting putting their capital with your traditional financial advisor. So a lot of family also kind of migrated and said, I'm going to bring in a house, kind of somebody to manage my investments, oversee sure. my investments. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how it's progressed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, now it's transitioning into kind of an official thing from what I've seen. And there's seminars that support it and a framework that supports it. You know, how do you make a family office? Well, look, you just go out and create an LLC. Generally, you're going to hire somebody to manage in all of your internal investments and portfolio and outreach and marketing for you and look at the deals for you and underwrite the deals for you. Mm-hmm. But like somebody like Richard, for example, he will actually form for you and his company an official kind of frame, family office framework and do all of that for you. So there's people mm-hmm. now that are managing those services. Um, like I've got a good friend of mine. He's a billionaire. And again, I introduced him to Richard and Richard's going through and kind of organizing, you know, what are some of the, the problems family offices have? And some of the things that you think about is kind of that, well, that, that, that generational success planning, right? Sure. Well, we've created all this wealth. These are the things that family officers are thinking about. And then if we, you know, most generational wealth dies after the second year and even more after the third generation, right? And so sure. how do we combat type of that stuff? And there's sure. all this planning that goes into it. And I think Richard um, uh, has some great resources. He's got free books that you can buy, that you can get, just pay the shipping. And, and they give you kind of these introduction on how do you create a family office, right? Awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's no, I don't think there's any official, but generally speaking, like I said, I think to, to be considered an official family office, mm-hmm. like you want to have a net worth of 20 million or above. I don't know. That's just, sure. what, that's just what we've been told. I uh, see. But there's I not see. a lot to it. I mean, you're, it's a business. Sure. And you've got people running that business for you, um, you know, and uh, that's it, man. And, I see. Mm-hmm. you know, I joined, um, I joined through Richard's, uh, Richard Wilson at the Family Office Club um, and uh, got in his database, got approved as a family office. You know, they verify you and everything else. Sure. Um, and, and like I said, that kind of opened. Now we get invited to private dinners and things like that with the, just other private family offices. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really been opened up the floodgates there for sure. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for yeah. sharing that detail. Now, Dylan, uh, in your fund, you, you have such a large fund now, right? Uh, how are you managing the risk? Meaning are you focused solely on multifamily or do you sort yeah. of uh, block and tackle with, let's say a self storage or yep. let's say a manufactured home parks or any other ventures for that matter? Good question. I am extremely, I've always been extremely disciplined. I don't go outside of exactly what I want. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's multifamily. I only I invest in multifamily mm-hmm. and I'll look at very specific markets mm-hmm. and I have to have very specific. I have a whole set of criteria. You can actually see it if you go to our website um, mm-hmm. and, and you'll see review criteria um, and kind of what we look for. But um, I don't go outside of that ever. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and the only thing I invest in is, is multifamily. I see. I see. Yeah. I see. Got it. Thank yeah. you. I appreciate it. And uh, any parting words uh, be, uh, and a couple of last questions here, yeah. Dylan, as well, is that what is some of your best advice in terms of, uh, you know, obviously you came through a career now, uh, Dylan, where, you know, you're obviously coming from a uh, hard work, uh, single family background, went through multifamily succession. Now you're kind of in that private equity space. Sure. Uh, so you probably are somebody who has kind of a wide panorama of people you've met right from, yeah. you know, sort of the contractors, your tenants, and obviously you went through, now you're networking with, with, with a very different stage uh, uh, of folks as well. So given all of that, what are some of the pieces of advice that kind of sticks out in your head? Well, the first thought that came to mind as you were talking about that 
is I meet a lot of people that always ask me, Dylan, should I go into multifamily or single family or private equity or whatever? And, you know, where should I start first? And most people like me said, well, let me progress and start in single family mm-hmm. and progress up. That's just kind of the natural thought pattern. It's easier, sure. seemingly easier mm-hmm. to get in. And, and But I got to tell you, like the advice I give people now is, if you know you want to be in multifamily, go right to multifamily. If you know sure. you want to be in, in private equity, go right to private equity. Mm-hmm. Um, because for me, I had to unlearn three times now habits sure. that, that did not apply and did not complement each other in all of those categories. Single family, the way you talk and communicate is so different from the way you talk and communicate in multifamily and the way you talk and communicate in private equity. Um, and I think that's very challenging. You know, the hardest thing for anybody in life is to change habits. And so, you know, I don't know if this is advice or not, but I think, you know, if you're thinking about where do you want to start, just go there. And it's the same amount of time and energy. People don't realize this. Quite frankly, it's the same amount of time and energy, pretty close to raise a $30 million fund as it is to syndicate a $20 million deal. Sure, sure, It's the same sure. amount of time and energy to go out and syndicate a hundred unit apartment building as it is to fix and flip a couple properties. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And a favorite <laughs> poem that, that rings, uh, rings true to my ears also is that what you ask from your life is what you get, whether you're asking, yeah. uh, you know, sort of, let's say the, uh, you know, a single family or a multifamily, or uh, in your case, as you're saying, like go bigger uh, into, into the private equity. Yeah. Uh, incredible advice, incredible advice. And now Dylan, one last question here. As you progressed into various aspects uh, in your career, what what sort of patterns do you see me in terms of what are some of the challenges and some patterns that you see that you are able to at your vantage position identify and say that hey you know I see this forming up and this is how you kind of block and tackle this thing. Could you maybe share some of the struggles and kind of how uh, some of the strategies you kind of uh, have worked for you? Help me understand that a little bit better. Meaning, yeah. like, for example, let's say you are into from single family to multifamily, and now you're yeah. into private equity space. Uh, so struggles can perhaps be, hey, perhaps my branding is not great. Perhaps my yeah. marketing is not great. Or perhaps the way I want to communicate, uh, I want to refine my tone and language. Or perhaps I want to improve my customer service. So I'm just kind of maybe putting words in your mouth. But sure. if you can relate the sort of the tone of my question, and maybe kind of give us some input about, you know, what has been harder and perhaps how you kind of uh, conquered that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I think in terms of harder, I don't think any of them are any harder. You know, they're mm-hmm. all, they're all very unique experiences. And in each category, you're going to have, um, you know, challenges that are, at, you know, normal for that category. Right. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for me, you know, in the single family space, you know, I, I realize it's a very high emotion space a lot of times, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, which I was never really comfortable with. I never liked that. People kind of led more with their emotions than logic, right? And so sure. that's kind of a trend that you see there in that space. And you have to really play into people in that. Things like mm-hmm. NLP when you're selling people and heavy selling and that type of stuff as you're communicating sure. with sellers and agents. And then as you shift into the multifamily space, there's very little emotions, a lot of ego, but very little emotions and more logic. Right. Sure, and so you sure. have to learn how to communicate and look at things from a more logical and people that really kind of excel in that space are people probably like you and I that are high analyticals. Sure. And then as you get into the private equity space, um, you know, it's an entirely different ball game where it's not, 
even so much emotions as in, in logic as it is like experience, right? Um, and so how do you, how do you get that? Well, I think you, like I said, you either bring on people that have the experience mm -hmm. or you develop the experience yourself. And I think if I had to do it again, I'd probably go right to bringing on, that's the shortest path to success. Like you find a sponsor in a, in a multifamily deal, right. To bring in people that have the experience. But I do say this, when we talk about trends and things that you see in real estate, you know, I really want to, I, I call it my micro and my macro markets. And, and you notice no matter what type of real estate you're investing in, there's kind of this 10 to 12 year horizon in which things consistently go up and down. And you have to be very aware of what kind of, I call it my uh, macro market you're in when it comes to investing. Like right now, if you're paying retail for stuff, you're an idiot. Sure. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> so because, you know, you're paying the highest you're going to have for real estate. And so there's different strategies and then there's kind of your micro markets, which to me are like the seasonal stuff. So like in Michigan, we have a lot of, you know, we go through the seasons, a lot of states do. And sure. so if I'm fixing and flipping a house and I'm planning to sell that house in January, but I'm using comps from the summer, right? It's not going to work. Then yep. People aren't thinking about that. You know, I might sure. see a 10% dip in value, right? And so I really want to draw people's attention to, you know, no matter what type of real estate you're investing on, be aware of how real estate is very kind of predictable. I mean, it happens, moves in these kind of big swings up and down, right? Like in some markets, foreclosures go really well and then they kind of dry up. And so what's the strategy right now? Well, right now, absentee homeowners is a great strategy if you're a single family guy, right? Sure. Uh, Airbnb owners is a great strategy. You know, coming up, there's going to be a lot of foreclosures that are taking place, right? And so these things and strategies shift, right? Sure. And the same with kind of the multifamily space um, as well too. So I don't know, just when you're talking about trends, there's these kind of 10 to 12 year up and down and how do you invest, you know? And I think if you're buying value add real estate, you're going to always be fine. You're going to always be fine no matter what you're doing. If the market, people get hesitant and say, well, should I buy right now? We shouldn't buy if you're paying retail, but if you're paying at a discount to market value and there's significant value add you can add, you're going to be fine no matter what the market does. Absolutely. Absolutely. Dylan, thank you, brother. I think I've thoroughly yeah. enjoyed the discussion. I'm sure our viewers and listeners will draw a ton of value. Hopefully. Yeah. You know, your, your discussion about, you know, sort of the financing, buying real estate at low. And if you're buying value add, uh, you can never go wrong. Obviously, people have to understand what is a good debt, bad debt, and yeah. your whole notion about how the economy goes in cycles and the ebbs yeah. and flows and understand that there are peaks and valleys and be sort of a patient investor and yeah. make sure that you're buying correctly and things like that. Absolutely love that discussion. Uh, awesome, th thank you for your time. Please share with the listeners how they can find you and learn more about your company. You can't find me. I hide from everybody. No. <laughs> <laughs> Look, the easiest way is either dylanborland.com, D-Y-L-A-N, borland.com. You can get to all of my stuff from there or borlandcapital.com, B-O-R-L-A-N-D.com. That's our private equity stuff. So awesome. thanks so much for having me on and hopefully somebody picked up one or two things they can you know, implement from this. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure having you for listeners and viewers of the podcast. You know, please log on to premiumcashflow.com. We always have news articles and guest experts like Dylan who are sharing their wisdom. So a ton of value here. 
And if you are interested uh, as well to invest, uh, please log on and sign up. Uh, we can perhaps get on a short phone call and understand what your goals are and if, if there is alignment and we can help you with further. So thank you, Dylan. I appreciate it. And I look forward to having another uh, thoughtful conversation with you in future as well. So. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast. Please join us at premiumcashflow.com to sign up for weekly updates, research articles, and more. We will see you again for another great interview with an expert guest.